Colossians chapter 3, verses 22, and we'll read through uh, verse 1 of chapter 4. For nothing else, we have fun around here. Um, or at least I do. <laughs> uh, all right, Colossians chapter 3, picking up verse 22, reading through verse 1 of chapter 4. Bond servants or slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Jesus or Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bond service justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. This is the reading of God's holy and infallible word. Um, one of the things that has to be addressed, we're going to talk about work this morning, but before we get to that, we have to address what I think is, if you know anything about the history of the United States and the history of the way the church in the United States, in particular the South, interpreted and understood this text, is I must ad address the idea and the understanding of what Paul is talking about here in regards to slavery. Um, it is important to understand that New World slavery, as historians perhaps call it, which was engaged in so much a part of the fabric of our history as Americans and of, as Western uh, civilization, is different than the slavery or the bond service that Paul is talking about here. First and foremost, the, the slavery and the, the bond service that Paul talks about here in, in the first century slavery was not race-based, whereas ours in this hemisphere, and the South in particular, was. It was about demeaning and not giving dignity and honor to a whole people group as image bearers of God. Historian Murray Harris says this about the slavery in the Greco-Roman world, that there was nothing outwardly about servants or slaves that designated them as such, and that would distinguish them from the free men. As a, as a matter of fact, slaves were very often highly educated, more educated than their masters, they were able to marry, they were able to accrue wealth, and many even owned their own slaves. Most of them ended up purchasing their own freedom. Some historians have even estimated that during this time, the first century uh, in which the, Paul is talking about, the context culturally that he is speaking into here, um, was one-third of the people in the known world at that time would have considered themselves as having some form or status of slavery, and they, they, they be, took on that status or were brought into the status for a number of reasons. One, one nation may have conquered another nation, and therefore, as a means, they saw themselves as servants or slaves to another country because literally they were taxed in such a way uh, that so much of their, uh, their, their wealth went to another place. Sometimes your family would sell you into some form of servanthood or slavery in order for their child to be provided for, in which the family could no longer provide for their kid. And so they would sell their child to another family, and the child would function as a servant in the household to pay their way in their livelihood as they grew up. Often they would put them in that position or to provide them an apprenticeship as well so that they would learn a trade from another family. Another issue was infanticide. And as I talked about this last week, that it was so common that fathers would, if there were too many children in their household, maybe would stop, would say, we're not taking any more kids, and they would leave them out in the woods or on the, the beach to die. In particular, if they had little girls, 
and families would come and take up those children as a means of mercy, but in order to provide for them, they would, uh, they would say that they must take a role of service in their home. Most often, people took up a role of service or enslavement because they were paying off a debt, that they would uh, say that I'm going to sell myself to you to pay off the debt that I owe you, and I'll work for you for a certain period of time. So what's important here is that there are other reasons why you were considered a slave or a servant to another person than what is the degrading, immoral, disgusting, and evil practice that occurred in our own country. And also it's important to know that this form of first century slavery was for the most part not for a lifetime. The vast majority of slaves uh, would be only slaves until they were 30 years old. Cicero, who was the first century historian, rather famous, said that a slave would normally be set free within seven years of their enslavements. So there, there, there is, we're talking about two very different things here. Now, the question still lies, in which many people have rightly asked, why doesn't the Bible outright condemn slavery? Well, one historian put it this way, that condemned first century slavery would have done incredible damage and hurt to a significant portion of people. For in, instance, orphans, especially little girls, if they would have essentially been kicked out of homes uh, and sent to the street in which, without a shadow of a doubt, the only things they could have gone to was to sell themselves back into slavery, usually sex slavery, or they would enter into the world of prostitution itself. Also, indebted people in that system would have no way of getting out of debt. That was the means in which you would sell your services. In fact, going to live and functioning as a servant in the household was the means of paying off your debt. If that system went away, there may have been no way, and particularly for impoverished people, to pay off their debts. So while we don't see Christians in the first century outrightly and very directly calling for the abolition of all enslavement or servanthood, we do see evidence in the scriptures that discouraged it. For instance, in 1 Corinthians Paul says to the, the, those in the Corinthians, in the Corinthian church, who were enslaved or servants, that if they have the ability to pay off or buy themselves out of freedom, that they should do so in order for the good of the gospel. We also have a whole book in the New Testament in which Paul is addressing this issue, in which he is writing to a man who was a master of a man, a man named Nephilimon, who had a, a man who worked for him named Onesimus, who ran away from his debts and ran away from his servanthood and ended up running into Paul, becoming a believer. And Paul is writing to Philemon, and he's saying, listen, you are no longer to see, them, see him as a servant of yours, as a man who is indebted to you, but instead as a brother in Jesus Christ, who is equal to you in every single way, who stands before God the Father as equal, and therefore you to treat him rightly. In fact, I'm asking and imploring you to release him from his debts and his servanthood to you so that he may be of service to the proclamation of the gospel. So we see that the scriptures, even though it doesn't outrightly communicate that slavery is wrong, in large part because not all forms of enslavement are certainly nothing like we experienced in uh, New World slavery in our country and in the West. Let me just say this very, very briefly as well that the greatest, those who fought against New World slavery in the 18th and 19th century were people who understood God's word. That they were not people who said that I'm going to be moved by the cultural mores of my day, that I'm not going to be, read scripture through what is convenient and what is economically beneficial only for me, but they read the whole of scripture and gave it correct credence 
that when in Genesis it says that God made them man and woman, that all men are created equal in God's sight, they are his image bearers, and they ought to be treated as such. Tim Keller talks about this when he has a friend who is um, a historian, a student, a PhD student at Yale University, and they were, he was a, a student of American history, and one of the questions that would consistently come up amongst the students would be this, is how could people in the past in America have put up with this horrific issue, this horrific thing called slavery? And the response of historians was, well, actually, every culture in all of history has had some form of enslavement. The better question is to ask is if, why, if in all of human history, cultures of almost every kind have owned slaves and mistreated people, why, did, why was there a shift and a change in the 18th and 19th century? And the issue historically that they gave was because evangelical Christians became serious about their faith and actually took serious what God had said in his word. That the Quakers in particular took up the call to seek out freedom for those who were enslaved and to rightly exegete and understand God's word. It was men like William Wilberforce and John Newton, and it was so many men within the African-American community who had the boldness to stand up for their people because they understood God's word. They didn't simply look for proof text, but they understood the whole of it as it was rightly, we ought to rightly know it and understand it. So that's, having said all that, and I actually said more during the first service, but I ran out of time in the first service, so I'm having to cut it off here. If you want to hear more about that issue, you can go listen to the podcast in regards to that in the first service. Having said all that, let me turn our direction to where we're going to talk about this morning, which is this, that the primary system in which Paul is speaking to here And the issues he's speaking to is he's saying, listen, God redeems your daily work. Even if you're indebted or you're even enslaved and you're a servant to a person in this world. In other words, for what is relevant for us is this is much more close to our vocation, to our work, what we get up and go do in our life. What we've seen in Colossians is that we as Christians are putting off the old self and we are putting on the new self. And when Christ Jesus becomes more and more our new self and is pushed out into our lives and it looks a certain way, and your marriage will look a certain way. We looked at that about a month ago. Your parenting will look a certain way. We looked at that the last couple of weeks. And now we also see that your relationship with Jesus, that God is after redeeming your work, your vocation. This is an incredibly important topic. How many of you, most of your waking hours will be spent in a vocation and working, and yet the church so often doesn't talk about this. As far as we go, is we'll say, hey, you should evangelize in your workplace. We don't have a doctrine for work. Dorothy Sayers, she was a British woman, a writer, and an essayist, a novelist. In her essay entitled Why Work, she says that a society as a whole, and individuals in particular, are dying because we do not have the revolutionary old biblical doctrine of work. She says, in the Bible, there's a view of work that is revolutionary from the way that we view it. Essentially what she says is the modern view of work is all about attaining something else. There is no value in the work itself. She quotes a surgeon, a friend of hers, who puts it nicely. He said this, essentially what is happening is that nobody today works for the sake of the thing they do. The result of work is only a byproduct of their real aim. Their real aim in work is money or status, So a doctor practices medicine, not primarily to relieve suffering in this world, but to make a living. The patient is something that just happens to be there along the way. Lawyers accept briefs 
uh, lawyers accept briefs not because of their passion for justice, because this is the profession that enables them to live. And this poor view of work in our culture, in our day, and yes, in Western civilization, which has been all about work, but we've lost a greater biblical aim, has made life and made work a drudgery. We need a biblical view of work. And so pull out your sermon outline if you have that in front of you. We're going to work through what it looks like, a biblical practice, a biblical doctrine of work. The first point is this. We need to understand that blessing our work is a blessing. Paul says there to do what? Work heartily, to work hard. Proverbs 6, 6 through 10 or 11 says this, go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. How many of you parents have said that to your high school student turning over in bed? Without having any chief officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers food in the harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When you will rise from your sleep, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. That's Proverbs. But even the New Testament, a gracious, gospel-loving New Testament, Paul says this, He who will not work, neither shall he be able to eat. Work, throughout the scriptures, we are called to work and to work hard, to work with perseverance and with diligence. That's the call to the Christian that that's the way we're supposed to live. But in this brief statement about working heartily, Paul's saying much more than that. First, Paul is saying that work is hard. It is hard. And why is it hard? Because of sin. When Adam and Eve sinned, God said, because of your sin, there are, instead of getting certain blessings, you're now getting curses because of your sin. And he came and he communicated what those cursings were. For Eve, it was she was going to have terrible and painful labor in her delivery of children and the way she sought to raise her kids. But for the man, what was cursed in his life? His work. It says that a man's work will now be labor. It's actually the same exact word. The same word that is there in Hebrew for a woman's give, word for her giving birth is the same word from the man's cursing of how his work will now be. It will be laborious. It will be emotionally taxing and physically painful. Work will now be like you know the, the Greek myth of Sisyphus, the man who is doomed to, to roll a rock, a boulder up a hill all day long, and every time he gets it up to the hill, what happens? The boulder rolls back down. That's why Solomon says this, Ecclesiastes 2, all the work in the world is grievous because it is meaningless. Work is curse. Now, work has been cursed, but that doesn't mean that work is a curse. Those are two different things. Work has been cursed, but that doesn't mean that work itself is a curse. Many of you see curse as a, I mean, work as a curse in your life. It is a curse of your life, but that isn't the whole story of the Scriptures. Because Paul, in saying that we are to work heartily, not only is saying that work is hard, but he's also saying, by affirming and confirming that we ought to work heartily, is that work is good. The very first words in the Bible, what do we find? Someone is working. God is working. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It is all about God's work, and he rested from all his work on the seventh day, it says. And what did God do when he made Adam and Eve? He immediately, he puts them to work. It's called the creation mandate in Genesis 1, that verses 26 and 27. God says this, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. All right, so that's the context, that we are image bearers of God, and let them, 
in light of their image bearing, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And how did he bless them? He blessed them with this blessing. And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on earth. God blesses Adam and Eve with what? Work. With dominion and dynasty in this world. Work is not a result of the fall. It is said by one pastor, he said this, in paradise, they were not on vacation, they were on vocation. Not vacation, vocation. And this reflects what heaven will be like probably. That we often, some of you are bored with the idea of heaven because you think you're going to be in heaven singing in a big huge choir for all of eternity. Now that may be the case for some of you who are really gifted singers, but even for some of us in our redeemed state, it will be a blessing to no one if you sing in heaven. You will be working, I don't know what that work will look like, but you will be working, fulfilling what God has gifted you to do. God will have us working probably in heaven in some way, shape, or form. You know, the Bible speaks heavily and highly about work. Over 800 times, there's 800 verses that refer and talk about our work. Work is a blessing, and we need to work. A man who does not work, someone who does not have a purpose and a vocation in their life, they shrivel up. Our culture shrivel up. I lived in Bosnia in a place where there was high unemployment, and the culture is dying because people have no life to them. They have no purpose or sense of significance. We need to work. There was a terrible experiment that was carried out in one of the Nazi camps during World War II, in which there was a group of men that were given the task and assignment for years on end to take what was uh, refuse, sewage, and to work in a plant where they took this sewage and they turned it into fuel. How would that be if that was your life, to live knee-deep in excrement only to make fuel for your worst enemies, for those who hated you? And, but the men who did this, it was shocking to find is that they survived. And in fact, compared to everybody else in the camp, they seemed to thrive. They had a task each and every day. They would get up and they would seek to do and do well. But then something terrible happened. As the Allied bombers were able to push further and further into Germany, into Nazi-occupied territory, eventually they flew over this factory and they bombed it, destroying it. And so the Nazi commandant, apparently having nothing better to do, decided that he was going to perform a great experiment to see how these guys would do if he gave them a particular task. And so what he did is he said, we want you to go over to the factory in the rubble, and we want you to pick up all the rubble there, and we want you to move it to that field over there. So they would move it and move it into the field, and he would say, okay, pick it up and put it back where you started. And do this time after time after time. What happened to those men? No longer did they survive and thrive. Many of them began to die off rather rapidly. Some of them simply fell apart emotionally. Others went crazy, charging their guards to be shot. Others would simply throw themselves against the electric fence, committing suicide. Dostoevsky said this, robbed of work, robbed of meaningful work, and men will go stark, raving, mad. Researchers have found that our best moments in life, the life that when we were most excited, most joyous, most happy, are not when we're experiencing leisure or some form of physical pleasure, such as when we're having sex or eating chocolate, but when we are totally immersed, it says, when we are totally immersed in a challenging task that is fraught with significance. And may I add, that's probably especially true when you do it in community, when you do it with other people. So I want you to see that work, hard work and labor, 
is meaningful and it's a blessing. And even in post-fall, even in post-fall, because in our work and in our labor, we are pushing back the effects of the fall. There was a British man who was talking after World War II about his experience, and he said this. He said, the reason why men found themselves so happy and satisfied in the army was that so, for so many of them, for the very first time in their lives, they were doing something not for the sake of the peg, which was miserable, but for the sake of getting something done that had to be done. That it gave them a sense of purpose and significance, despite the fact that they went with hardly any food and in terrible circumstances, and many of their friends died, and yet they found purpose in it because they were doing something and trying to push back the evil that was invading their lands. This is what we ought to do. Yet in our culture, how do we view work? We view work as a curse. We live for the weekends, right? This is not a correct perspective. And in our denomination, there are those who are trying to fix this in for some of you, it would appear to be the most peculiar way. We sang the, the song, Spirit of the Living God, this morning. It's written by a man named Dan Iverson. Well, Dan Iverson's grandson lives in Atlanta, and it was an elder in a PCA church, which is what our denomination belongs to, and he started a Bible study. In the midst of that Bible study, he wanted to have some time where the guys just hung out, spent some time together, and so his wife had bought him one of those beer-making kits. So they made beer together. Well, they realized that they were pretty good at this, and so they made some more. And then they made some more, and they realized they were really good at this. Eventually, they decided they were going to start a brewery. It's now known as Monday Night Brewing. It's one of the fastest-growing brewing companies in the entire country, and now every guy who's part of the Bible study works for the brewery. Started in a Bible study. Now, why do they name their company Monday Night Brewing? Because they believe this. Their, their, their tagline is this, the weekends are overrated. That they're saying, we want to push back against this perspective that work stinks and life is all about simply the, the excesses. That just getting to the weekend and getting drunk, that's not what it's about. They say this, that work is a blessing and to cap off a great day of work, of blessed work, is to come home that that should not be capped off by drinking Natty Light. That should be capped off by drinking a high-quality beer. Seriously, go to Monday Night Brewing, take the tour, that's what they'll say. They're going to talk about that. They give, they, this is a kingdom perspective on our work, that work is a blessing that we don't have to live for the weekends. That's one thing. That's really important. Work is a blessing. It's a gift from God. But second, we're going to spend the majority of our time looking at God's, at the heart for our work, that God must give us, we need a heart for our work biblically. It says this in verse 23, whatever you do, work heartily. How? As for the Lord. Work for the Lord. Now there's some incredible implications of this if you're working for the Lord, what it means for your work. First and foremost, what it means is working for the Lord means that your motivations for your work change. There are so many bad reasons to go to work. So many false and foreign motivations that are foreign to the scriptures, one of which is people-pleasing, right? It even says it right there in the text. Do not work in order to simply please man while they're looking at you. Heard the illustration of a woman who, um, her great heart's desire was to be an elementary school teacher. And she went into college, she was like, I, I, her, she loved to teach. But as she was getting ready to choose a major, she thought to herself, this thought came to her mind, what will I tell my friends at my 10-year high school reunion what I do? And she decided that being a high school, uh, an elementary school teacher was not significant enough. So instead, she went to law school. She hated law school. She didn't want to be a lawyer. She loathed it. She was bored with it. And yet, people-pleasing, what people thought about her job, 
shape what she did. So often we, we do what we do because our parents have told us what to do or because it, you know, we simply want to please our boss. But what it says here is this, is that we must look around our boss, look around the company we work for, look around our employer, and look to who? The ultimate boss. See, to please the Lord. You see, some of you work for great companies, and you have a great manager, a great boss, a great employer, and that's wonderful. And so you have, and you have a great salary, and so you work really, really hard, and work feels significant and purposeful. But for many of you, you don't. What do you do on the occasion when your boss is a jerk, and you realize that the company you work for is really not that great, and you disagree with, their, with what they're doing? Maybe your work ethic goes down a little bit, you come in a little bit later, you don't work quite as hard, you take a longer lunch break. How do you actually be consistent in carrying out the call to work hard? You've got to work for somebody else. You've got to work for your Savior, you've got to work for your God and your Creator, and doing your best, not because, not because you owe it to your company, but because you owe it to God. He has called you to live this way. But underneath the people-pleasing, underneath the seeking for... Um, money and financial gain, there are, there are more insidious reasons for why we work. In fact, there are reasons, there are, idolic, uh, there are idolatrous reasons for why we work that actually drive us to work really, really hard. You see, for many of us, the bad motivation that we have is that our work is what helps us achieve a sense of our worth and our value. It's what gives us our identity in this world. You may be seeking to have your finding your identity and worth in what you do and how successful you are and how well you've performed you know, there's one guy in the last couple hundred years who talked more about work than anybody else. His name was Karl Marx. And he said this, that a person is what he does. That a person is what he does. Now, in America, we hate Karl Marx's philosophy for the most part, at least in past generations we have, but we have swallowed his premise wholeheartedly. See, for us, vocation, our vocation equals our identity for many of us. We think we are what we do. What's the first thing you ask people when you meet them? There is a reason why we do what we do. Tim Keller says that there's a work underneath all of our work. There's somebody that we're serving. There's a longing that we have even within our work. You know, you know the movie Rocky? There's a great line there. And which Rocky, you know, the great premise and that great montage where Rocky, he's hitting the meat and he's running through little Italy and he's running up the stairs and he's just beating his body into a pulp in order to get ready for the fight. And he's asked, why is he working so hard? And he says this, because I want to go to the distance. Because then I'll know I'm not a bum. His work was his means of self-validation. It was his means of understanding what he was worth and for many of you, that's why you go to work. That's why you seek for success and power and so much money. It's a means of validating your existence. George Clooney, in an article by Men's Health, they did an interview with him. The article was entitled this, Why George Clooney Never Sleeps. And he's quoted as saying this in the article, Most of the time I wake up and I feel as if I've missed something. Sleep is something I have to make myself do. My dad keeps getting on me about having a family, but I say, name one after from the 1920s. That's my response. And he says, no one remembers anyone from the 1920s. What's he saying there with that statement? He's saying, I work like a dervish. I must never sleep. I must work so hard because I must be remembered 80 years from now. My life is nothing if I am not remembered. That's a sense of worth, of value. Why does he work to make a name for himself, to be remembered? And the repercussions of this for our lives for so many of us are devastating. 
you say you work too much, or your work is so closely tied to your identity that everything in your life, your family, your wife, your hobbies, your friends, everything is subservient to your work. Everything falls into and is a slave to your work. You get angry when you don't get the raise. Why? Because by not getting the raise, people are telling you that you are not as valuable. You're not worth it. What happens for somebody whose identity is caught up in their job? What happens when they get let go? It's not simply that they're devastated by the fact that there's not going to be financial difficulties. No, they get crushed because this is the, the, the weight of their existence here. And this is driving a stark raving mad, so busy. You know, sociologists have done a, a research, and they entitled the re, the, this one study called the Doordwell Study, in which they were looking at how busy we are as a people. And the study, what they did in the study is they timed how long it takes from the time that you walk into an elevator before you hit the door close button. Haven't you done that? Three seconds in, you're like, oh, come on, what? Shut the door. I'm in. I, gotta get, I got places to go, and I got people to see, and I got stuff to get done. Three seconds in, you're like hammering away at that little button. Door closed, door closed, door closed. Now, now, now. That, and you don't want the social awkwardness of having somebody else in there with you, right? We are people who are so busy. Before we go anywhere in regards to work, we must strip ourselves of all attempts to find our meaning and our ultimate significance and our identity from our work. What do we need? We need a new motivation. In a new motivation, what's the motivation that Paul gives us here? Our motivation is to worship. Work is worship. It's a means of communicating, giving your life over to the Lord. It's a means of honoring and pleasing God with all, every aspect of your life. And the question is, how do we go from people who are self-obsessed, who are seeking to find our identity and our worth in our work, to being a people who see our work as merely a means of worshiping and praise and honor to God? And living in that freedom. Two things I think we got to focus on. First is we got to meditate on this. We got to meditate on Christ's finished work. Why is Jesus worthy of our worship? Why? Because he labored on our behalf. Do you think the cross was a cupcake? What do we see Jesus doing on the cross? He is laboring. He is going through all aspects and elements of the curse. He is under the pains, labor birth pains. He's being crushed with the bondage of enslavement to sin, and it is coming down upon him. He's laboring on your, half, your behalf and my behalf. It says he is the king of kings and he is the lord of lords, but what did he become? He became the servant of all. He took on the slave status. In Hebrews 4, verse 9, there's this amazing passage there. The Hebrews writer is talking about what it means to be a Christian, what it means to believe in Jesus. And he says there, he says this, that there remains then a rest for the people of God. For anyone who through the gospel enters God's rest, rests from his work just as God rested from his. This is an amazing thing. Why, what does it mean to become a Christian? Well, we can answer that in many ways, but for one way, it means this. One way to answer that is to be a Christian means you rest. You rest. Can you rest? Some of you are just going crazy because you can't be, you can't rest. Do you think Mozart died thinking that he was an absolute failure? Greatest musician maybe in all of human history. Failure. Why? He didn't get the success that he thought that he could reach to. No matter how successful you become, you will never be able to rest until you've rested in Christ's finished work on your behalf. What does Jesus say on the cross? It is finished. What's finished? All the work. 
Matthew eleven twenty eight. What does Jesus say? Why did he What did he come? Come to me, all ye who are weary, all ye who are heavy laden. I will give you what? I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. What does it mean to receive Christ as Savior? It means you rest in His work. When you say that my acceptance, my approval, my worth, my identity is no longer found in what I do, what I achieve, what I accomplish, but my accomplishments are nothing. I rest totally in what Jesus has accomplished on my behalf. That's resting. Set me, God, not because of my work, but because of Jesus' work. Now, this leads to a second thing, though. A second thing that we are meditate on, because when we hear the voice of God's word saying, it is finished, you're ushered in back into relationship with God, and you get to hear the voice of God's approval over you. In other words, you get to hear his voice. Here's the thing, ultimate worth and ultimate value, which is the key foundational idolatry problem that we have in regards to our work is this, is that we are looking to our work and we are saying, tell me I am valuable. Tell me I am worth something in this world. But here's the thing, in all the scriptures, God has the first word about your value and God has the final word about your value. In creation, Genesis 1, how does he describe Adam and Eve? And male and female, he created them in his image, and he said they are very good. And yet we separate ourselves from him. And so now we look to our, all of our vocations and all these things saying, am I valuable? Am I worth it? And that's why coming back into relationship with him, you get to hear the final word from God says, you are valuable. In our doctrine, we have this thing called total depravity. And so often I have friends, and I've talked about this before, but I have friends who take on Calvinism. And the first thing that they want to believe is they're like, y'all, my kids are little total depraved people. And so they sit over their kids' beds and they go, you are so totally depraved. They see their two-year-old sitting and they, well, he's depraved. He's just a little sinner. Listen, that's the statement. That's the truth biblically in the fall. But there is a word that came before that, which is there an image bearer that was made very good. And there's a final word that came from Jesus that says, you are so valuable, even in your depraved, broken state, that you are so worth it that I will shed my son's blood to make you mine. That's value. That's the final word over you. For so many of us, this is why you have to take, in order to hear this voice, the reason, this is the reason why you must actually take Sabbath keeping for real. Sabbath keeping matters. It's not simply just the, a commandment in the New Testament, I mean the Old Testament. It's not just another law. It's for our flourishing. It's for our good. Because when you take a day off, it reminds you that ultimately your life is not about what you can accomplish in this world, but ultimately you get to be quiet and you get to hear the voice of God says, you are acceptable in my sight. Your identity and your trust are not what you can do, but ultimately your trust is in Jesus. Some of you, some of you have great jobs. Some of you have great balance in your life. You work 40 hours a week, you're 8 to 5, you're home at 5.15, you're playing with the kids, you get good night's sleep, you take your weekends off, you take your vacation time, that's wonderful, but you're still exhausted. See, for so many of us, the issue is not so much a work thing, because work is a good thing, Right? We don't necessarily just need physical rest. The problem is not the presence of work in our life. It's the absence of deep rest. You hear me? The issue for so many of us is not the issue that we work so much. It's the, it's the absence of any kind of internal rest. In this you, one physician said this. She was, uh, it was a female physician. She got pregnant, and she was telling a colleague about how great it was to be pregnant because she said this, because it means I'm always accomplishing something even when I sleep. 
how addicted we are to progress. Even when I'm asleep, I'm making a baby. It's how she justifies her existence. This is how I am. I go to sleep at night. I'm going to bed at night. I've, I've trusted in the gospel of grace. And it just seems like my trust in God's grace just seeps out of my ears through the night. And I wake up and I go, I don't have time for the Lord. I've got to hit the ground running. I, 70 miles an hour from the word go, I don't have time for him. I don't have time for my children. I've got to accomplish something. If I don't, the day is worthless. Isn't that you? Trying to make yourself worthy before the Lord. Do you remember Chariots of Fire? It's a movie about the Sabbath. Two dudes in the Sabbath. That's what it should be called. <laughs> one guy can't stop working. One guy was able to rest. The guy who can't stop working, he's a runner. He's a sprinter. And like Rocky, he's asked, why you run? He says this, I have 10 seconds to justify my existence. That's how some of you live your, your life, isn't it? Trying to validate. You get up and you, you're sprinting through life. That's why we are such a drugged up country, because we are so anxiety addled and stressed out from all the work and all the busyness. It's driving us crazy. To be a Christian in your bones means that your work does not define you, but Jesus' work on your behalf and his word over you is what defines you. Paul says this in a great passage in Ephesians 2, verse 10. It says that we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works. But the means by which you get you the good works is you've got to realize that you are his workmanship. The other way to articulate that and translate that is that you are his artwork. The greater that you understand that you're God's artwork, you're his workmanship, then you will be able to work for his glory and for his, his praise instead of for your own sense of worth. So we need a motivation change, but we also need for our, we need the work, we need the work for the Lord means that we need our purposes for working to change. Turn over to Ephesians 4, verses 28. should be on the screen for you. There's an interesting passage there I'm going to glean two things out of this morning. It says this in verse, Ephesians 4, 28, Let the thief no longer steal. So that's where we begin, with a thief who's stealing. But rather let him labor, so he should go to work, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Two things to bring out of this in regards to the purposes of your work. You, you should go to work. You should labor hard, first and foremost, in order to have something to give to other people. What is the opposite of stealing? Is it not stealing? The opposite of stealing is not not stealing. The opposite of stealing is generosity. Stealing is taking things that you don't deserve from somebody else. Generosity is giving to people who don't deserve your generosity. The call, the redemptive vision that we're giving here for the person who's a thief is not simply to go to work and to work a good job. Man, many, many people would be great. Many conservatives would be great to hear this. See, because many conservatives like the idea, we love the idea of people going to work, and that's great. It would be awesome if everybody went to work and labored hard. That's part of the commands. But what's the other half? Don't be stingy with God's money. That's the other half. That you are not actually not stealing until you're giving your money away. That God says all that you have is yours? Yours? You think, yes, oh my goodness, I worked so hard, I've got myself through school, I worked 60 hours a week, I have labored and labored and labored and labored, it is mine, I've done these things. Well, guess what? There's a farmer in Kazakhstan who works 20 hours a week harder than you, and he makes $170 a week. God gave you everything. He gave you the family that you were born into. He gave you the color of your skin. 
gave you that family, they taught you that Puritan work ethic. Oh, bless them. The Bible says he seems to always connect radical generosity with robbery. And Malachi, he says this, God says you, to the people of Israel, you are robbing me. And they said, how are we robbing you, God? He says this, you're not giving. You're not generous to the poor. If all you have is yours and you refuse to give it away, you are not just being stingy, you're being a robber. What did Bernie Madoff do? People gave him money, and what was he supposed to do with it? He, in serving them, he was supposed to take their money and seek investment on their behalf to give them more money. But what did he do with it? He took their money and he used it how he wanted to. That's called what? Embezzlement. Welcome, embezzlers, to God's economy. That if you're not generous, you are indeed so engaging in thievery. That's the first. So work in order to have something to give. Second, to bless others. It's in Ephesians 4.28 here, there's an, an interesting line. It goes like this. Do honest work, okay, rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands. With his own hands. Now that's, translators have a difficult time, and you actually see it in different versions of the scriptures, translations, but essentially, literally what it means is this. That the Greek there is saying that he must do something useful. Useful. Do something useful. In other words, your work should be useful for you and for other people. The purpose of your work is not simply just to make it have a paycheck, as great as that is, but you actually do something that is good for you and good for the people around you, that's good for your neighbors. And no one has done a better job of articulating this than Martin Luther. If you find in Martin Luther in his exposition, his commentary on the Lord's Prayer, there's this great line in the Lord's Prayer, right? It says this, you're praying to God, God, provide my daily bread. And he says this, well, how does God provide our daily bread? God has promised to provide for us. In Psalm 145, it says there that God, that God is going to provide for all his creatures, that he provides bread and milk to all his people, to his creatures here in this world. But then Martin Luther asked the question, how does God provide the bread and milk? Does he show up at your doorstep and give you bread and give you milk? No. He gives men jobs as farmers and other men who sit there and milk the cows, and other men who do blue-collar jobs, who drive the vehicle that gets the milk from the farm to the grocery store, and other people who work minimum wage and work in the grocery store to sell you that bread and that milk. How does God provide for you? Through his community. Your work, you're called to be a good neighbor. You go to work in order to bless other people, to have something to give, but also to have something to bless, to create human flourishing in this world. There's another place, Psalm 147, in Luther's exposition there, it says this, that God strengthens the bars of the gates of your cities. Back then, cities had walls, and that took people who could build walls, construction workers. And the walls provided security, the gates were strong, and people wanted to live in cities because only in cities was there the rule of law and justice. It means this, that if you're a good judge, you're blessing the community. That if you're a lawmaker... You're somebody who works within politics. That's a good thing to, to bless the community with good and faithful and just laws. You're a policeman. That's a good thing to bring about security in this place. In other words, God takes care of us, gives us security through one another. You see that. He works through us to be good neighbors. Elizabeth Elliot talks about this when she talks about Genesis 1 and 2. And she says this, don't you see what God does? He's a God who takes chaos and turns it into order. Moms, doesn't this feel like your job? You're cleaning the same room for the third time today. You're creating order where there is chaos in your life. When you clean your house, you're reflecting God. When you clean 
You're, you're, when you create a garden, you're reflecting who God is. You're bringing order out of the chaos. This is what this means. As you go to work for the flourishing of Carrollton. You see, when, when uh, Bill Fordham goes and collects old things that people have thrown out and makes them beautiful again, not only is he doing an eschatological thing where God says, I, t- I make all things new, he's turning something that people have turned into junk and making it beautiful again. He's making people's homes beautiful. When Eric Hine goes to work and you nurses go to work, when Amanda McCarty went to Australia, she didn't simply go there as a missionary to help people with the gospel, but she went there to do good work, to be a blessing by taking care of people's physical needs. That's good for your neighbor. When Wendy Mason goes to work and helps students who, many of them come from impoverished backgrounds, helps them, counsels them through getting their GAD, that's a blessing to all of us in this community. When Ryan Ayers goes and helps floundering young farmers learn how to better care for their land, that's good. He's being a good neighbor. It's a blessing for our community. We engage in work that is useful, not just for you, but for others. For third and finally, when you work for the Lord, it means all your work is significant. There used to be only one word, and if you use the word vocation until the 16th century, that referred to one group, priests. Only they were called. But with the Reformation, that changed. And Luther emphasized that all work is sacred because work is worship. He says this, Our vocation is a mask of God behind which he hides himself and rules everything magnificently in the world. Do you see this? That God is working through your work. Eugene Peterson's got a great book. I love love the titles of his books. It says this. One of his books is entitled, Christ Plays in 10,000 Places. That God's redemption comes in all the different works and fields of vocation in this world. God is just not found in church and in our mystical spiritual experiences. He's found in our work. And it's the means by which he's bringing his redemption. If work is worship, then your work is sacred. That's a good thing. There is not a sacred secular divide. Do you know the first person in all the scriptures who is described as being filled with the Holy Spirit is a guy named Bezalel. You know what Bezalel does? He's a construction foreman. God has filled you with his spirit to, yes, have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, the fruits of the spirit, but he's also filled you with the Holy Spirit in order to do something useful for the community around you. That may be taking up people's trash, or that may be building beautiful buildings. We are to push back the darkness. The implications of this is that all our work, we are to give dignity to all people's works. The girl who serves your table, don't stiff her. Her work has dignity. The blue-collar person Little white-collar folks, don't look down your nose at their labor. Blue-collar folks, don't look down on the labor of white-collar folks. I'll look at them in their big buildings. All work has dignity in God's economy. Now, really quickly, some vocations are out of bounds. Abortionists, out of bounds. Running the projector at an erotic video store, that's out of bounds. These things are, are antithetical to God's law, and they're not good for human flourishing. But we are to be pushing back the darkness of evil with our work. Bono said this. He says, I write songs to tear off a little corner of the darkness in this world. So when you get in the car tomorrow and go off to work, moms, when you walk across the house, say this, I'm going to my corner of the garden. Every day there's new thorns and thistles here, but I'm going to go work my corner of the garden that God has assigned me to labor, to bring redemption and to bring light. One final point, and this is very brief, and then we'll get to the Lord's table, is the promise for work. Verse 24 says this, knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance as your reward. Now, when we think inheritance, we think wealth, we think riches, we think, we think crowns of glory. 
Now, we're probably going to get those, and that's sweet. That's nice. But I think it involves something more. Some of you, you know the, the adage, oh, my reward. My reward for doing a job is just a job well done. Well, here's the problem. In a broken world, for some of you, your job is never done, right? Don't you? I was talking to a couple of guys after, after the first service. I love mowing the yard. You know why? Because it's one of the only times in my life in which I can start something and accomplish something and I can see the work get done. My life, my job, day in and day out, I, I don't even know what, I don't know what you're all doing. I mean, like, uh, I mean, I don't get to see progress. And for many of you, you're going you're gonna to create a great management structure in your business, and then someone's going to come in and undo it. Many of you moms, you experience this three or four times a day. You clean the room, and what happens? 20 minutes later, the, the room is messy again. Or while you're cleaning one room, another room gets destroyed, right? Our work is always being undone by the evil and brokenness of this world. Here's our inheritance. Our inheritance is our work will finally be finished. I'm going to close with this story from J.R. Tolkien, which he was experiencing writer's block while he was writing Lord of the Rings. And he came to a point he didn't understand, he didn't know how to bring all the, fa- the, the, the storylines to a completion. And so he decided to write another story. And he wrote a little short story that was entitled this, <laughs> Leaf by Niggle. His name is Niggle. Kind of like giggle, but Niggle. Well, Niggle was an old man, and he was an artist in a little town, and, the art, and this town commissioned him to paint a beautiful mural on the wall, the city wall. And so he started, he went to work, but he was struggling. He began his work and was, started with a leaf, but it was having a difficult time capturing the vision for what he wanted his work. His, so he was going to want this, this beautiful tree he was going to paint on the wall. And he was taking months and months and months of starting over and starting over and starting over. And all he ended up accomplishing was one leaf. And the people were so angry at him. It's like, they go, what are you doing? We've given you all this money. Would you get to work and finish the project? And then, you know what? Niggle died. Tolkien says this. He, he says, Niggle on the way to heaven was riding a train out of the city. And as he was leaving the city, he suddenly saw his wall where his painting was. And it says this. He saw the wall and he jumped out of, the, out of the train because before him stood the tree, his tree, finished, its leaves opening, its branches growing and bending in the wind that Niggle had so often felt or guessed and, but had failed to catch the true vision for. He gazed at the tree and slowly he lifted his arms open and opened them wide and said this, it's a gift, it's a gift. Someone has completed my work. What's the point of the story? One of his stories is this, is he's an artist. You may be a school teacher, you're a mother, you may be an architect, an engineer. And maybe in all of your labors for 60 years, all that you can produce is one little leaf. But you, you paint that leaf well. Because here's the beautiful thing. When, God, when Jesus is promised, when God promised to say, when he says this, I will carry on my completion, my work in you, and I will finish it. It wasn't simply talking about your sanctification. It means this, that he has a vision for your work. It says this in Gladiator. Remember this line? What we do in life echoes in eternity. Now, that's Eastern mysticism, but it's somewhat true. And this, that what you do in this life, God purifies, and he sanctifies, and he has a vision for it, and he completes. And when we come, did you know that we're going to stay in this world? He's going to come, and he's going to redeem this world. And one day, one day, in heaven, your inheritance is this you will see your work as it should have been in a perfect and unbroken world.
That's the beautiful truth, and that's the gospel. And here's the great thing. That you're going to say, all I did was one little leaf, God. And he's going to say, because of Jesus, I say to you, well done, my good and faithful servant. Let's pray.